ladies and gentlemen, the Vanilla Godzilla and myself are back for another edition of One Day Closer to Dead. I am Dave Beaudry. And I am Jason Bailey. And Jason, how the hell are you? I'm doing pretty good, buddy. Let me tell you, it's good times over here in Lexington. How about yourself in Los Angeles? So how are things going in Lexington? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right everything's going good buddy i just uh I, I think it's interesting i want to give you a little bit of feedback at the top of the program here of course and uh some of it was that they, they listened to our last episode which uh, was uh, very well a solid episode is what i call it when we get a lot of good listenership right off the bat and it was really solid uh, and uh, some comments out there about uh, the airlines and how we were the the basically the final nail in the coffin of people never traveling again. So I'm glad we could help you out on that. And also, why would we expect there to be any different situation than what's happening up there when we're in the middle of an uncivil civil war between the two the two sides of America, the uh, the uh, in battered and belittled uh be be i don't know what you'd call them but are you okay over there i'm doing okay but i just think that there's a whole faction that really thinks that uh well i mean they ousted liz cheney let's put it that way for for actually just standing up for what actually happened where donald trump lost the election and there's just a lot of people out there that just feel that they want to take their country back from that election that they fucking lost. And I guess they're bringing the, that battle up into the air. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but, and then you've got the other people that back science and want to wear masks. So we're definitely in the middle of a fucking civil war here. And, uh, a lot of people commented on that, Dave, just saying like, why, why would we expect it to be any different up there? You know, up in the, the wonderful blue skies, of the well, United States of Free Enterprise. Well, I'm just saying. For a moment, you sounded you sounded flustered. You sounded befuddled. Uh, well, and the, the, also another thing is what I think is very upsetting about it is that it's hard to put your finger on exactly what is happening, other than that there are, there are two sides that absolutely hate each other, and that we can't even sit on a fucking plane for six hours or even four hours to go somewhere without there being a physical, violent, upsetting altercation between the two clans. You know what I mean? The Hatfields and the McCoys. So it's just, well, it's weird. Well, I'm just saying next you'll be confusing A&E with AEW, but regardless. Or um, A and W. And A and W because root beer is forever. But, uh... <laughs> No one knows what the fuck we're talking about right now, but us. But that's okay. <laughs> it will happen. So, so I, I do think that I do think that puts a little bit more emphasis on an agenda than I think actually exists because I think a lot of these incidents that are happening are literally just people getting drunk and being assholes. It's not because they're they're necessarily like going to their airplane with the agenda of trying to make some great political statement about the election one way or the other. So I, I think that overstates the agenda, I guess, or, or the intent to a degree. I think it's just people being stupid, regardless of whatever their political beliefs are, getting up in the air and just, you know, because either they're drunk or, you know, wound too tightly or whatever, which the last year certainly plays into and the last four years certainly plays into. And then just blowing their stack at shit that they should not be blowing their stack at. And I, I, I think that uh, maybe uh, overanalyzing that a little bit. 
No, I mean, yeah, that, that could be very much so. It's just, uh, I don't know. A lot of people out there just comment on that, uh, you know, they've been following the news too and had seen some of these reports, but us talking about it was just the final, like, that's it. We're we're not getting on a fucking plane ever again. A lot of people looking into RV traveling. So I guess that's, uh, thank you very much. You can, you can send us our royalty checks on that, the RV uh, industry. And then also, I just wanted to throw out there a little bit of a thank you again to Paris, France, uh, in our top three cities this week. And we had a lot of listeners in Paris. So thank you very much. It's nice to know that uh, someone over there is listening to us and uh, actually cares about uh, two ugly Americans speaking about our problems over here. Well, I mean... Statistics show that they're listening. We cannot necessarily ascertain that they care. That's true, but thanks for actually listening. We don't really care if you care or not, but we really do appreciate you fucking listening over there, Paris. So thank you very much. And like I said again, always Kansas City and Wichita, Louisville, Lexington, Los Angeles, Austin. We got a lot of fans in Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you very much. We appreciate that, too. So anyway, just want to throw out some thank yous to our listeners out there. And uh, hey, we just stay off those fucking planes. How's Detroit been doing? Is that does that come back into our, into nah, our top I, 10 at all? Once they found out you were born there, that kind of dropped off. So, God damn it. I knew it. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but there you are. Well, I'll take the blame for it anyway. Uh, any any further feedback on either the. Uh, you know, chuck it in the fuck it bucket as far as people walking away from potential conflicts or our Indiana Jones critique or anything, anything else that uh, is fit to print. Well, the Indiana Jones, uh, I think that a lot of people listen to us specifically for that uh, segment. And a lot of people just uh, comment on they're they're around about our age. And a lot of people commented on they remember it as a child going to the movie theaters and watching it. And back when the movie experience really was a movie experience because you know it's i'm not just talking about covid and and how they shut things down and right, and, and yeah. multiplexes i'm not talking about all that i think i'm talking more of an age thing when you're a child and you go and you do an event like that whether it's a concert or whether it's a, a going to see a movie with your parents or or whatever have you when you're young these experiences are really magical and a lot of people were kind of um Remembered those times through our conversation about Raiders of the Lost Ark or, or Temple of Doom or Last Crusade. Those seem to be the three films that they were bringing up a lot about. I remember seeing this in the theater and it was magic. And that happened a lot. But th- what was interesting about it, Dave, they weren't just talking about like Harrison Ford and Steven Spielberg and the movie itself. They're talking about being a young child going to the movies and how spectacular that was and what an imprint on their their minds it left. You know, it just burned into their psyche that this is something magical that's happening and it had an effect on them, particularly as a child. You know what movie actually for people in in my age range and, you know, I'm 40 right now is the that more than any other that I can think of really of. Our, our, when I say our generation, that does differ a little bit because five years can make a pretty big difference as far as your, you know, movie theater experience and how old you were when you saw something. Like seeing Star Wars at like, you know, five years old is different than when you saw it at like 10 years old or whatever, you know. But at least for, for people in my age group, give or take, the, do you want to take a guess quickly at what movie 
at least off the top of my head, like more than one, at least several, like three or four have said that like seeing this particular film when it first came out in the movie theater, like shaped like the rest of their like life and pop culture, like fandom. Can you, can you guess what that movie is? What from like you like from forty year olds kind of saying that yeah. kind of thing ish 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 thirty ish. to forty. Uh, God damn! I'll give I, you. A, I'll give you a hint. Think yeah. think early nineties. Um, I'm thinking maybe Terminator Two or good guess, but no. It maybe uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Um, <laughs> no, I, I love I, that movie, but no. I, I I don't know. Like I'm thinking of like a, a big. Big theatrical version of something. Last hint. Also Steven Spielberg. Also Steven Spielberg. Jurassic Park. Yes. Okay. I have multiple friends of mine that separate from each other have have said like that the like watching Jurassic Park as a child in a movie theater like just completely was like life altering for them. You know, and one of them actually has a has a um you know, social media presence totally based around that. Um, you know, her her IG handle is Jurassic Jen, and it's all like her with various like Jurassic Park merch and stuff. And she's a very legitimate like it's not just a gimmick. She's a massive fan of that film franchise, especially the first one. So check out Jurassic Jen on uh, on Instagram. Good friend of mine, excellent person, uh, highly recommend. But uh, yeah, Jurassic Park really had a a really strong uh, influence on on people that saw that in a theater if they were probably, you know, early teens to younger, I would say. Yeah. You know, the thing is that I always, I always think that I, you know, I'm biased because I'm me. That I I just came up in the absolute correct time for the consumption of media. My first film I ever was taken to in the theater was Star Wars. The very first film I ever saw. So not only do I remember seeing certain scenes of Star Wars very, very clearly, but at the same time, it was the first time I'd ever been dragged to a movie theater. So, I mean, that sets the bar really kind of fucking high. And then after that, I was just bombarded in my childhood of Star Wars, like Empire Return, um, Star Trek, where you're talking Star Trek Two, Wrath of Khan, Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four. I probably saw Star Trek Four five fucking times in the movie theaters. And then you're seeing all the big stuff that comes along, like... You know, a lot of us saw Raiders or Last Crusade in there. I think the 80s were the greatest fucking decade for those kind of big fucking films where where kids would go in there and see a whole nother world. And a lot of times that Cineplex thing had not happened yet where there was, you know, where you're, you're jammed into a fucking mall with multiple screens. I still remember the old Fox theaters that you went into and it, it was a grand fucking thing where they had one screen, the curtains pulled, like literally the curtains pulled and it was, you were all seeing the same movie and it was huge. It was fucking huge. I remember that way with ET gremlins, goonies, Fucking all of these great films. I used to sit there and go like, there's just nothing better than the 80s for that kind of motion picture experience, you know? And then for the 80s at the very end to, to, to end the whole thing on Last Crusade and Batman, you know, the Tim Burton Batman with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. And it was just like, 
this perfect bow wrapped around the the movies decade. The when you think of when I think of movies, going to the movie theater, I'm thinking the 1980s. I'm not thinking the 1990s where they shoved eight films into a theater that was shoved into a mall. I'm thinking a movie fucking theater. And it was a grand big old fucking thing that you were getting ready to do. And they produced movies that even to this day have lasted in that. I remember seeing Ghostbusters in the theater and that being a huge fucking thing and walking out wanting to be Peter Vinkman. I mean, it was just like the greatest thing that ever happened. And these movies just kept on fucking rolling through the 80s. So I don't know. I I think that my generation, that Gen X generation being born in the mid 70s, late 70s, uh, no more than early 80s. You just got the greatest fucking arc of motion picture experiences that that we had to, that we had to give. Everything after that, literally, I think, became smaller and and a, a lot less. Not the movies were 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 worse. I don't think. Although I I don't think they were as good as the movies in the 80s. But I think that just the experience itself wasn't that it wasn't as grand as and as magical as it had been. I don't know, but I the first guess, that's that's bias on my part, probably. The first movie that I remember seeing in a movie theater, I couldn't say with one hundred percent certainty that it was the first time I'd been in a movie theater. But what comes to mind is my first movie theater experience was Benji the Hunted. So my bar was a little bit lower, really. <laughs> You know, that's why every movie we discuss, I'm like, that fucking sucked. You're like, it wasn't as bad as I thought. See, Benji versus Star You're Wars still started. You're about the Snyder Cut, huh? <laughs> no, it's everything. We still haven't seen Training Day, so. I think what's funny is how much you take the opinion of, I don't think it was that bad, you know. Oh, I like I've it. eviscerated plenty of you things. You said don't... you, there are so many times Dave Bodrick will go, I liked it better than most, but now that I know that Benji No, I liked it your... better than you. No, you say most. You say be. it most of the time. Literally, I think Benji's what did this to you. If you st- maybe I should have started with Benji. Maybe I would think everything's fucking great at that point. Maybe you know that that was it. But when you start with Star Wars, and as a kid, you're seeing Superman the movie in the movie theater and Ghostbusters. In fact, it it just everything's like, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it done better. Whatever. I'll tell you the biggest, the, the biggest, the biggest event movie that I remember growing <clears throat> up from that wasn't a re-release because uh, you know when when Star Wars got re-released, that was a that was a huge deal. But I mean, you know, it does. I, I'm not counting that because it's. It's Star Wars and people had already seen it. But uh, as far as an original release, the like a big time kind of event movie that was really fun for its time was Independence Day. Um, yeah, I, I remember put that. that up there with Star Wars. I remember anything, that. But when that came out, man, that was an event. No, I remember that. A lot of, a lot of people, they, they love Independence Day. I remember that a lot. Yeah. But no, I don't know. I just think that 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 was what touched people as far as feedback goes. That's what touched people the most about that us just kind of rating and ranking and, you know, rifting on Indiana Jones was, you know, just them thinking back to their childhood and going, I remember my grandfather, my grandmother, my mom, my dad, whatever, taking me to a movie theater when I was a kid. And goddamn, that was special. And I think that's uh, really the, the, what we got the most feedback on from, from the last, uh, last show. That, that does make me wonder, uh, cause you know, that, you know, somewhere in the world, there are people whose first movie experience, movie theater experience ever was Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And I wonder for that group, like what their opinion of Indiana Jones is, because it, it really does depend on what age you were when you see, 
the first one of that film that you see. You know what I mean? Like younger people tend to like the Star Wars prequels a lot more than you or I do. Um, it depends on what age you were when you watched them, really. Yeah, that's true. I'm I'm always fascinated by this is the fact of the that only my God, I think only about 10 years after the prequels were really released, finished, done, the whole thing, how many people I started meeting younger than me that really would say good things about the prequels? And I just sit there and go, what the fuck are you even talking about? And you're right. It was a certain age group has a certain opinion of something because they were introduced to it at that age. I'll be, I'll give you an even more specific example when it comes to star Wars. Um, I love the Ewoks. I love like the characters, the whole story behind them that they're, you know, living in trees, protecting the trees, you know, this whole thing. I love the Ewoks. I think they're cute. They're badass. There's nothing I don't like about Ewoks. I had a friend of mine that's about four or five years older than me that when he saw Return of the Jedi, when it came out, thought it ruined the fucking film. Yeah, I've heard like, that. E the Ewoks ruined Return of the Jedi. It's not even watchable because a bunch of teddy bears have spears and are fighting the, the evil galactic empire. And that is, I mean, we chalked it up to where it's got to be an age thing. That if I yeah. was maybe five years older, I would have thought, this is fucking stupid. But it hit me at exactly an age where I was still willing to accept that cute teddy bears could beat the fuck out of the galactic empire. And it... It worked, you know what I mean? It really it really did. So, you are right about that. Is it, when certain uh, films or certain pop culture hits a generation, it boy does it fucking hit. That's their thing. That really is their thing. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes if it hits you at the wrong time, you could want to get as Jason did after seeing <clears throat> Crystal Skull, get blackout drunk as a result. And that brings us to our first uh, subject of the day. How do you, Jason's loving that transition right now. Because yeah, it's it not here. fucking true. It wasn't I worth a beer. Because uh, <laughs> the world is a dumpster fire, Jason. Did you know that? It, yes, I do. Really? Did you know why? Because it truly fucking is. So, Jason, you have something you wanted to talk about today. So how about uh, how about you fill in the dozens on our agenda for this? We pretty <clears throat> much just did a Childhood yeah, is did. Dead segment, so we can we can table that. And now our second segment, I guess, will be uh, our dumpster fire. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Bailey, please enlighten the dozens with your brilliance. Well, here's the deal. As last week, we talked about the planes being fucking psychotic and air travel being crazy. And, you know, it's just... Uh, you're taking your chances, folks. You really are. You may be uh, literally in a toe-to-toe -to -toe battle, a brawl for all, if you, if you will, up there, depending on your political stance or how drunk you're getting. And that brings us to our topic this week, is there's a lot of news agencies, news articles, and hubbub out there about the rise in alcoholism due to the pandemic, due to last year's shutdown, okay? And pandemic drinking uh, went through the fucking roof. Now, you may or may not recall this, Dave, and all of our faithful listeners out there, the dozens, but over a year ago, and it was a year ago, if not more uh, from right now, when we started really getting into cotton candy and how it was changing us and we didn't really know where it was going. And it was all a brand new horrific type fucking thing that we were dealing with. I remember saying, because I could tell right away from, well, the people I work with and I'm around all the time that uh, there was going to be a problem with drug and alcohol abuse. And I could tell right away 
that this was happening from anyone that they said, you can't come to your job. You need to go stay home all day and warehouse yourself. Well, what's a human to do? I guess they're going to Netflix and fucking blackout because that seems to be what we all did, at least here in the United States of free enterprise. And I was asking people, how's your alcohol sales in the restaurant business? And they're like, it's through the fucking roof. It's through the roof. If we, if you're still open and can do alcohol delivery or they can do alcohol pickup, it was going through the roof. Same thing with a lot of stores, our fucking local uh, total wine and spirits or whatever the fuck it's called. All the liquor stores were able to stay open. They were considered essential in the United States of America. <laughs> alcohol, I guess is really truly essential. Okay. So I could tell right away from just people I knew that their alcohol consumption was increasing dramatically. It's already been shown that in certain areas of the United States, alcohol buying, purchasing went up 45% halfway through 2020. Okay. And that a lot of this was just people at home with not a lot to fucking do. Okay. And there you go. Well, it's now being shown that just like my half joking remarks about we're all going to need rehab when this whole fucking thing is over, that it's true. America sort of needs rehab the entire fucking country because of alcoholism. They've shown now that there is in uh, alcohol related disease, a 30% increase now from before the pandemic, the last year, there's something I didn't even know this was a thing. I don't know called alcoholic hepatitis or something of this nature. Yeah, where it, it basically it mimics the effects of hepatitis, you know, like a transmittable disease, but it's it's caused by uh, the liver damage from excessive drinking. Yes, where you're getting fatty liver and it's giving you the exact same uh, symptoms as hepatitis. Yes. Well, they, well, they also said that not only is it up 30%, so look at this, sales of alcohol went up 40%. And it correlates now to we're reopening the country to liver damage and toxicity of your body through alcohol, alcoholism going up 30%. So there is definitely a direct correlation. What's even more interesting about this, or I mean, it just to me, because I'm fascinated by, I guess, America's self-destruction, is that most of these cases are being seen in women, not in men. That the, the increase of, of this kind of, uh, I guess, binge drinking, which is, I guess, like something categorically like five drinks within an hour, two hours, some shit like that. But it, it basically gets you stupefied and blacked out to where you don't know what the fuck you're doing or what your name is. Just increased dramatically in women. And it also with, you know, women citing that they've they've realized that they have an alcohol fucking problem that because they were at home all day doing their work from home with their kids at home, that everything was at home and you know, you've got your, you've got wine in the refrigerator. So it's happy hour every hour. And you know, it just sort of became this cool thing on zoom to have, you know, this like this mommy wine, this mommy juice, whatever they call it, or, or, you know, whatever they want to call it. Wine o'clock. Yeah. Rose all day. Whatever the cute things that women were kind of, you know, gravitating to, uh, and I do, I'm not trying to specifically, I'm not picking on women. I'm saying that this is exactly what they're reporting, that these cases are dramatic in women, that they've also shown that the, the women's liver cannot process alcohol like men can. So they said that although that there's been an increase in alcoholism in men, 
that pretty much it stayed the same with the alcohol-related type uh, medical problems. I guess men just knew they were drunk, stayed at the same level, and carried on during the pandemic. I don't know. Maybe we all, like, you know, Clint Eastwood said, every man needs to know his limitations, and we somehow fucking knew them. But women really, uh, anything that we can do, they can do better and hit it hard. And uh, their livers are suffering greatly. And there is a lot of women in particular that need help right now getting weaned off alcohol. But the reason I want to talk about it is because of my personal relationship with alcohol being you know, fairly complicated throughout the last uh, couple decades. And just knowing that, yeah... You know, had I not been told I was an essential worker to go to work, you know, my job is to make people fat for money, and I was not an essential human being that was required to go to goddamn motherfucking work and, and to get my paycheck, um, I may have sat around at home all day and just gone through bottles of fucking bourbon. I don't know. I can't say. But I do know that that would have been something that I would have had to keep a real fucking close eye on, a real close eye on, uh, because, you know, if I get bored or there's nothing to do, well, that is something that I have turned to multiple times in my life. So I, my, my heart goes out to these people who turn to this to help with um, stress during the shutdown, boredom during the shutdown. Um, Loneliness loneliness yeah absolutely and just also i think that you know uh, this is just a and i think dave you're gonna have some things to say on this when you're an adult and you say the word you know party or a social occasion or a get together it for most of us not all of us but for most of us that goes hand in motherfucking hand with alcohol it just does that's that's the you know adults toys is fucking alcohol that's how that's how we play with each other that's how we loosen up and start relating and, and have a good time and the thing is that a lot of these zoom parties or zoom meetups or whatever the fuck they were calling to keep people from going fucking insane was always accompanied with a nice drink or two and then that turned into three or four which turned into all day fucking drinking so I'm just, my heart goes out to people suffering from this. I hope that as we open back up, we can get this put to bed. They're also saying, this is no surprise at all. I, I read up on this too, is that physicians all over the country are dealing with burnout through alcoholism. You know, they're, they're, they're hitting it really, really hard. And there's been many, many uh, doctors, they're just stressed beyond belief and their alcohol consumption has gone through the roof just to you know, self-medicate on a day-to-day -day basis to, to deal with said stress. So like I said, it's not a judgment thing. I have had my own fucking battles with alcohol. Okay. And I know a lot of fucking people who have, and, and there's no way that a listener out there right now is not also battling this, whether you've opened up to somebody you care about with it or not. This is goes hand in hand with, I think I can only speak for America because this is the country I I was born into and I live in is that alcohol is really, really part of our fucking culture. As much as coffee and fucking guns, America likes their goddamn alcohol and it's readily available everywhere all the fucking time. So uh, I just want to reach out to all you guys and say, if you are suffering uh, from this pandemic drinking where your alcohol, it, it, the tipping point happened during the pandemic reach out to someone and let's get this, let's start taking care of this right now. Because as we're reopening, things are getting back on track. 
Um, yes, the health issue was to, you know, stay secluded, stay away from each other, stay quarantined. And yes, that absolutely was a must. We had to stay away from each other, not to spread the virus even further than it did or kill more people than it did. But having said that, a lot of people's physical and mental health suffered tremendously and they relied on alcohol and drug abuse and drug abuse to get through this motherfucker. So our, my heart goes out to you. I know Dave's does too. We're in it with you, but reach out to somebody and uh, I'm going to throw it back to you, Dave. What do you think about all that? Well, I think there's also a long-term effect that is yet to be discovered. That's going to be researched heavily over the next couple of decades, as far as what long-term effect this past you know couple of years has had, because it's not only affecting the people whose drinking has increased, but you also need to remember that everybody in general, everybody, uh, has been stuck at home for give or take a year. And that includes kids that would normally be in school. And that also means that, I mean, we've already talked about in the past how there was a, an increase in reported domestic violence incidents uh, throughout 2020. And also, you know, you figure when you have uh, the increase in drinking as well, you have an entire generation of kids that grew up out of, you know, for a, a year, year plus with these really stressful home situations where the parents are drinking, they're possibly fighting, you have domestic abuse possibly going on. Like that affects the long term mental and emotional outlook and health of those kids. And I think that is something that's going to have to be reckoned with on a really serious level over the next 20 years you know, at least. Uh, so I, I think we haven't even begun to scratch the surface on that. Now, as far as the actual alcohol usage or deification itself, that in of itself is not really a new thing, like the wine o'clock and like the just, there has always been a deification I found kind of interesting in regards to alcohol. And also, and, and this helped me understand it, also marijuana. And I figured out the commonality there is because both of those things can be used, sometimes to an unhealthy degree, but can be used to help people try to quell their anxiety. And anxiety is such a massive problem in, in today's society, regardless of what country you live in. And, you know, there, you know, sometimes it's directly as a result of, of people's you know, social circumstances, and other times it's just an ingrained genetic issue. But anxiety is such an overbearing problem for so many people that I think anything that helps blunt that to some degree really gets deified to an almost ridiculous level. Like, for example, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, as far as beverages go, like I en enjoy Mountain Dew. You would never hear me bragging about how many Mountain Dews I can drink in an evening because it'd be a really weird thing to brag about, right? Yet somehow, from the time of even before people reach college age, really as, as early as high school, depending on where you live and what your circumstances are and who's around you, you know, the, the ability to drink copious amounts of alcohol have been, has been kind of correlated with like a sense of toughness or manliness or, or something that really is nonsensical, but it absolutely is part of the social zeitgeist and still is now. You see it constantly with, you know, with fraternities and sororities constantly getting into trouble because of these kind of hazing incidences that involve excessive drinking and, and what have you. Um, now, as far as personal experience with alcohol goes, I mean, I'm 
a large number of listeners probably know this, but it might have slipped by some of them. You know, I I don't drink and I personally never have. And, um, you know, a big part of that, I think, looking back, it wasn't part of my initial um, motivation necessarily. But I think on a subconscious level, it certainly played a, a degree. You know, I grew up with an alcoholic parent. And, you know, that parent died very young as a result of essentially drinking themselves to death. That's why I'm very familiar with, you know, the symptoms of alcoholic hepatitis, because I believe I witnessed it firsthand over a period of years. It was never officially diagnosed, but I would bet money on just with the symptoms and everything that I that I saw progressing over time. Um, you know, I, I guarantee you that that was absolutely an, an effect, you know, and, and people don't pass away at 56 from, you know, the amount of internal organ damage, you know, without there being some sort of, uh, uh, severe outlying, you know, other world, not otherworldly, but other lying, uh, underlying cause. So I was aware from a very young age that not only was that an issue in the household that I didn't like to be around, but also that I was aware that there was a genetic predisposition and that if I went back in my family, there was a very strong genetic predisposition. Um, on my one parent's side, on both parents, like, trees going further up, like, um, you know, both um, on my dad's side, like, there were multiple alcoholics on his side of the family. Uh, he was not one of them. Um, on my mom's side, there were other people that had, like, substance issues and stuff like kind of further along the, the family, the family tree. So I was aware and I'm especially aware now that, um, it very, it very much is possible that if I did even just socially start drinking, that I might not have an off button. You know, I don't know that I'm perfectly fine, not finding out about it. Um, so that certainly played into like, you know, even during college, like I never drank anything. And that always really weirded people out, which I always thought was kind of funny. People always had the same reaction if they find out you don't drink. They either immediately assume that you are like a raging alcoholic that is in a 12-step program. Um, nothing wrong with that if that's the case, but it, it is kind of a big leap in logic. Um, or that you're like, I don't know, some sort of deeply religious person and it somehow goes against you know whatever spiritual beliefs you have or something and you know none of that is is the case with me but it would always be you know someone be like oh he, he doesn't drink and they're like you don't drink at all and i'd be like no you know it's just i, I you know have never had the desire to so i don't and that's as much detail as i ever felt the need to go into and it was always the same reaction they would always look at you for a second and they'd just be like good for you and it's like why good for me like why does it even fucking matter like i'm not i don't give a shit whether you are drinking or not drinking as long as you're not like behind the wheel of a car or something but like so why is it like it's no different for me than if you're like eating a steak compared to eating a burger compared to eating a salad like i don't give a shit like do you man you know what i mean um and then the other side of it which very much was in my mind growing up is you know, I learned how to fight at a very young age. Um, I learned to fight at, I would say, a decently high level at a fairly young age. And I had to apply that at a fairly young age. Um, you know, I consider myself a fairly even-tempered person. Um, as I said, I, I have never drank, so I don't know what I'm like when I'm drunk. Um, it is conceivable, I don't know, I would rather, again, not find out, that, you know, 
I could really potentially be dangerous if I got drunk and lost control of faculties. Now, one, my life has been saved too many times by me being in full control of my faculties, especially when other people around me weren't. And so I don't want to, I, I do not want to give up that control over my own perceptions and mind and, and, you know, reflexes and all that stuff. But also I do feel a, a very genuine sense of responsibility. Like I have the potential to like really genuinely hurt somebody if I didn't have self-control over or knowledge of fully what's going on and what I was doing. And I would never forgive myself for that type of transgression. So that's, I mean, those are a couple of reasons why I've never fucked with it. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in the middle, you know, when I was doing security work, especially when I've been in the middle of all kinds of craziness involving alcohol and being the sober one really worked to my, uh, my advantage. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's, uh, yeah. So that's, those are kind of my, uh, those are kind of my beginning thoughts. If there's anything you would like me to espouse on, uh, let me know. Yeah, I know it was, it's interesting because we knew, you know, I've had a few friends in my life who don't drink at all and never thought less of them never. And that's weird that you would even say what I just said, never thought less of them because Dave's right somewhere in the United States of America. And I'm probably a lot of cultures all over the world. There is this de facto toxic masculinity. I can drink this much or your guys trying to, your, your guy friends trying to keep up with you or, or whatever. Drinking 21 yeah. shots when you turn 21. Yeah. And died of alcohol poisoning because of that shit like that. It just, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it never, never bothered me. Most of the ones that I, I have been very close to that don't drink oddly enough. And this might be a, a through line with you, Dave, is that they did come from families that had alcoholic parents or at least one alcoholic parent. And it, and I guess they saw so much shit in their, their fucking childhood. I think it, there's something in them that correlates that with bad. This is not a good fucking thing. Matter of fact, CM Punk's whole straight edge fucking lifestyle uh, was because of his dad. He was, he would just be like, this is ridiculous, dude. I related Watch to that. Like this, this does not look fun or enjoyable in any way, shape or form. No. And I definitely agree with, with that kind of perception. Yeah. And I think that, uh, I mean, there was many times that you'd be around me and, and some of the, some of our platinum listeners that listen to the day doing not just, hanging out but i mean actually doing creative work and we're drinking so i mean there were so many times where just like well, dave's coming get the gatorade because dave's coming he needs something to drink he's gonna gonna down this you know bucket of gin and tonics we made so i mean it there but there's nothing i never i thought that was great and at the same time it's just like who gives a fuck i get the same thing on my end when i tell people i'm a vegetarian Exactly. Oh, yeah. And I, and I know this is weird that I'm not correlating one. I'm just saying I understand because for seven years I was a vegetarian and you just literally see people. And this was in fucking LA liberal town, LA. Would they just look at you like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, I'm a vegetarian. I'm, I'm not eating meat. And it was always, it was for animal rights. Now I'm a vegetarian again for health reasons, but I don't fucking eat meat and it's not a big fucking deal at all, but it unnerves people it really does unnerve people to to be around someone that doesn't drink <clears throat> or just is a vegetarian and doesn't eat corpse. I mean, meat. I mean, steak. So, I mean, the thing is, it's very weird that people get that weirded out about them. It's like, I almost, I'm getting way off topic now, but it really drives me nuts when somebody is homophobic. 
and they're they're like looking at someone who's homosexual or they're unnerved by someone who says they're homosexual and it's like what does this person being homosexual have any fucking thing to do with you it has yeah. nothing to do with you just like this person that doesn't drink has nothing to do with your fucking drinking or this person who's eating a fucking salad and grains and beans and legumes and shit and you're eating this what does it have it doesn't affect you dickhead so what is the fucking problem anyway but I'll tell I just, you, it drives me nuts that it, but you can, when you say, when they look at you a second, same fucking thing with vegetarianism. They just look at you like it's a fucking alien that's come to destroy us. Well, I'll tell you what it is. A friend of mine who, who knew me really well and kind of knew the whole, you know, bought the t-shirt, seen the movie, read the book kind of thing, as far as the, the whole, you know, story behind all of this. You know, we, I remember we talked about this years ago and we're talking about this exact same phenomenon and what she said, um, and I think she was spot on and she's like, you know, like I know you and I know that you're not, but the reason people have that reaction, not just to you, but with, you know, just anyone of that certain ilk is because they immediately project and think that you're judging them, right. which you're not. Exactly. But but they, it comes from a place of defensiveness. Um, and I, I do think that's correct. No, that's absolutely fucking correct. And I mean, from from my point of view, I can tell you for a fact when the people that are the closest to me you know, um, the, the guys that are the expendables guys and gals that I consider the expendables in my life, you know, when we talk and there's, I don't think there's one of us that hasn't gone, dude, I got to calm down on that fucking alcohol. I got to calm the fuck down on that. It's having, it's having implications on my health. It's having implications on my attitude. It's having implications on my sleep, my relationships, all I, I have not had one motherfucker in my life that's close to me aside from the ones that don't drink such as yourself, not say I need to stop this or I need to calm down on this. Not fucking one. If they're being truthful with themselves. Okay. And also when they see someone that doesn't drink, I, they might, there, there is something where it's like, Oh, are you judging me? Cause I do. I'm positive. That's there. But I guarantee you, there's also something in their mind. That's like, yeah, I shouldn't do that either but I'm going to. So, I mean, there is that, but you say your genetic component with, with, with alcohol, Dave, on my grandfather, grandpa Jim's side, he had like 13 siblings. Most of them died at a young age due to alcoholism, either from the effects of alcohol or actual farm accidents that they just were so fucked up that they got eaten by like a combine and shit. Like it was like really crazy stuff. But it was all alcoholism. So when the time that Grandpa Jim met my grandmother and they got married, she knew about this very well. Didn't allow him to have a fucking nothing, no alcohol. It was like for fucking bidden because she was like, you ha you've lost too many people in your life to this stupid shit. You don't need this to survive. You don't need this. So like for Grandpa Jim, if he got like a can of bush beer once a month and hit it in the garage and drank it at lukewarm temperatures, boy, that was living high on the hog for Grandpa. So I mean, it, I get that genetic component because it does... That is a real fucking thing. I've had, a, I mean, saying how you was like terrified to ever get drunk, you know, and having the skill set that you do in physicality and, 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 and you know, the, the dealing out of violence if you had to. Um, I've had people in a kind of a, I'm kind of relating it in a way if you can follow me. I've had two separate friends, two separate parts of my life, didn't know each other and said the same fucking thing to me. And they said, don't ever try cocaine, Jason. Don't ever try cocaine. And I was like, well, I wouldn't, but why? And they said, 
I'm just, and they, they didn't even know they had the same conversation with me. They said, your base personality type, what you are as a person, what you strive for, how you are, I could see you just becoming, you know, the fucking Adolf Hitler of cocaine. Like you would just go fucking insane because the you Roddy would, Piper, you would like that so much that fucking what cocaine does to you is what you want to live in most of the time. And I never did because I was terrified. I had two separate people who did, who they enjoyed cocaine, but they could kind of like handle it. They were like, not you. Nope, not you. You would be on a Freddie Mercury high for the rest of your life until you're just dead. Don't ever try this shit. I, you know, I tried weed, like thinking that would help me with some alcoholism problems I've had in the last 20 years. I fucking hate weed. I'm not judging people that think it should be legalized. I think weed should be legalized. But I'm telling you, I just didn't like the effect. It made me feel out of sure. control, blah, blah, blah. But alcohol, boy, that is legitimately and literally my fucking poison. And I have to be very, very fucking careful with it. During the marriage that was breaking up, <clears throat> I did self-medicate with, right. with uh, bourbon. I mean, it was like I had bourbon for breakfast. I self-medicate with bourbon. I mean, and this is before I moved to Kentucky. So, I mean, the thing is, as the marriage was falling apart, that picked up real fucking quick. It wasn't during the good times that I needed bourbon. It was during the bad times. What does that fucking tell you? You're definitely self-medicating against bad, bad feelings. And then when the divorce happened, it was even fucking worse. The, the fact that I'm still alive after that first year of the divorce is... Right. It's some sort of minor fucking, you know, a little bit about it. Uh, cause I've already talked to you off air about, it, but my battle with bourbon, it, I mean, I woke up in the middle of the floor holding a bottle that was like a Costco size bottle of makers that was empty. I didn't know what time it was. I didn't know where I, I, I didn't even know where I was. And I was in my own fucking home. Okay. And I just was like, it was shameful. Like, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Heart palpitations, problems, like physically, I was always tired, couldn't work out properly. And that was a real thing. I like working out. Like, I, I absolutely genuinely enjoy working out. Uh, thank Batman for that. And, it, and I, it was one of the final straws. I'm like, I can't even get a good workout in because I'm too fucked up all the time. This has to go away. And the odd thing for me, uh, Dave, for alcohol is how I used to brag. Well, I didn't brag, but it was well known that I was like a, a Johnny Tar type figure in, in the Expendables crew where alcohol didn't affect me like it did other people. I could just keep on going. Okay. Uh, now, instead of bragging about how much I drink, I literally brag about how little I need to get by in the week. I'll be like, hey, I'm down to three, 4% beers this week. And I like, it's like I deserve a fucking medal because I'm glad that I brought myself down off that roller coaster of needing to be fucked up all the time to deal with anxiety, which it doesn't help with anxiety. I don't know if anyone knows that alcohol only increases the anxiety once you're no longer fucking drinking it. Like it's mm -hmm. the anxiety is way fucking worse afterwards. Okay. So the thing is my heart really, this is a, this is not just something that I'm saying to, that's a, a news article out there. I'm saying it from personal experience. No, I never went to go get uh, help uh, like a 12 step program or that an abuse or whatever that drug is. I never did any of that stuff. I just, there was a time where I don't know what happened. I just went, that's it. This bourbon shit, this 
is enough. It's enough of this. I can't continue on like this anymore. I don't have anything wrong with, you know, you enjoy your couple four or 5% beers every day after you get home from work. That's not really a problem um, for, for dudes out there. But, but when you start hitting the spirits, that shit was designed for one thing, to fuck you up and quick. And if it tastes good to you, that's just by happenstance. That's just a happy accident. I'll tell you something. I'm, I'm on a roll here. Let me tell you something else. That I realized that fucking liquor is just no good for goddamn anybody. You know, those, the Vikings back in the day, everyone said, oh, they were macho, toxic masculinity, took over the world, the badasses. They used to drink from these fucking drinking horns that came from whatever fucking cattle type fixture that they had over there in that time. And these horns you can still buy today. All right. You can still drink from them out of like Renaissance fairs and shit like that. And it specifically says you can drink meat out of this motherfucker. You can drink beer out of this thing, ale and some wines, but never liquor. Don't put any spirits in this motherfucker. It will dissolve the horn. It'll dissolve the fucking horn. It goes to show you right there that humans designed the steroids of buzz to get buzz, the steroid of that, when they started making spirits, okay? When you start hitting vodka, gin, bourbon, the big boys, tequila, and a little's good, you start thinking a lot's going to be a whole fuck ton better. You really are. And it, it the human body is not designed for it. And the only reason that you can consume it the way you can without dying is really your youth is saving you. Your youth is fucking saving you and your youth will not save you forever. So for all these women out there, they're having liver problems, which apparently 30% more of American women are suffering now because of this issue. My heart goes out to you. Reach out to a friend. There are programs out there and, and really take this fucking seriously and let's get this put to bed because I always knew in the back of my head that this was going to fucking happen. And I know for a fact People listening to our voices right now, right now are going through this issue, whether they have come out to their significant others or not about it. That's, I don't, I, I can't say, but I can tell you that someone's listening to me right now going, God damn, I have a fucking problem. I have a fucking problem and I've got to get this under control. And you do. And, you know, reach out to those that love you. And if you don't have anyone that you think loves you, Reach out to a professional because I'm telling you being an alcoholic and, and in my opinion, having a problem with alcohol air quotations is being an alcoholic, get it taken fucking care of, get it taken care of now so that when you're in your forties and your fifties, you've already put that motherfucker to bed. Well, I tell you, like growing up, I saw a lot of very full glasses of just straight vodka become very not full glasses of straight vodka. And, you know, eventually I said that eventually shit gives out. And I saw that firsthand and I'd, I'd rather not see that again. Uh, Jason, if, if the dozens would like to uh, share any stories of their own or give us their opinion on this particular topic, where would they be able to do so? If you want to reach out to us and specifically, and I mean this, you can really reach out to Dave on his Probably Dave is an open book on what he witnessed so that he can help. And I have gone through it, folks, myself. Please, please reach out to us because we would love not just, it's not just to post a story or talk about your feedback. It would be literally to, we're in this together type situation. You can reach us at 
Ask Dave and Jason at Excite.com because, well, God damn it, it's exciting. I'll say very quickly before we move on to our last subject, uh, speaking earlier about, uh, you know, temp- temperament issues and, and alcohol, there's a co-worker of mine back when I was doing security work many years ago, really nice guy, like one of the nicest dudes on the face of the planet, just, re- re- you know, really personable and, you know, just a genuinely kind individual. Major drinking problem that did not apply when he had thrown a few back and because he was, uh, you know, on the security team, he would get treated to, you know, discounts or free beverages or whatever on his on his off time from the bars and stuff that were on, you know, in the area. And uh, so one time he I mean, more than more than once, but then one particular incident, he he got shit faced drunk and decided to get all kinds of all kinds of violent and i had to have a nice little conversation with him and he motherfucker pulled the knife on me motherfucker learned that he would not pull a knife on me again and was informed the next day after he was sober and very apologetic that his apology was accepted but that if he ever pulled a weapon on me again there would not be a third time because i would break that man permanently and i meant it it's and well I, it's interesting that heart but that's it's, what it took to get him to <laughs> at least around me not try that shit again well that's also another thing that that the a lot of bouncers like to to brag also about their exploits and and you know we've been in bouncing and security and just street fighting but i'll tell you something it works in your advantage when your opponent's fucked up so easily. I'm a, a, easily, they just simply don't have the coordination or the thinking, the fighting thinking pattern to complete a, a, a task that needs done. And, and you are definitely in the driver's seat with people that are fucked up. You really are. It's um, so even a half ass bouncer, if, if they are sober and you're fucked up, they have the fucking advantage. They're going to put you down if they know what they're fucking doing. I think the alcohol is also amazing in the fact of alcohol is a tricky bitch and it really brings out different things in fucking different people. I've seen angry drunks. I mean, really mean spirited motherfucking drunks. I've seen melancholy drunks that start sitting in a corner and crying about shit that happened I mean, decades ago that, in my opinion, don't even matter. And I've, I'm, a, and there's happy drunks, and I can tell you, I'm, I'm a pretty happy fucking drunk most of the time when it happens. I mean, you, you can be my worst enemy, and I end up, you know, you're my best friend all of a sudden. So it bring alcohol is weird. It brings out s- some parts of people that they keep hidden in a fucking box, and it is very, very strange. It is both a, you know. Uh, a depressive type situation, but it's also, you know, brings you up. It really does. It, it, it can really stimulate you too. So, it, you know, it's depressive, but it stimulates you all at the same time. And it really is an elixir of problems for, I mean, it's just true that something I've lived by as I've gotten older is nothing good comes from going to a bar. Not one motherfucking thing. And it, it's it's a, a study of alcoholism run amok where you're binge drinking around a bunch of other people that are binge drinking. Uh, people can barely be trusted on their own. Throw alcohol into the mix, you know, a la the fucking airlines right now. Well, you got, you got problems. You really have a lot of fucking problems. So... You know, I, I, I think that we, we've covered it, but like I said, you know, you definitely have a sympathetic heart in Jason Bailey over here, and I know Dave feels the same way, and I know 
for a fact that somebody out there listening to this knows they have a goddamn issue and it's it's time take it seriously just as seriously as you would bringing up your child or going to your job or you know paying your rent whatever the fuck it is that you worship you you hold sacred take this sacred get get rid of this fucking problem get it under control any way you can shall we move on to last topic of the week absolutely my friend blood and guts jason blood and guts what yeah. would you like to say about blood and guts, Jason? Well, A&W's Root Beer Fest was amazing. It had a lot of blood and guts because everyone was pushing their way through to get those chili cheese fries that Dr. Eddie Gizmo Gomez wanted so badly back in the Did day. Did A&E do the, a documentary on that? A&E, AEW, and A&W are all the finest wrestling promotions right now running. See, I'm glad we just got that out of the way because I was going to fuck it up eventually, okay? Because of the A&E documentaries and the best wrestling right now being produced by AEW, I have been fucking up my own conversations with people for a full fucking week over this Blood and Guts episode. And then as I was talking to Dave, I kind of threw A&W in there. I'm like, my God, it's all it's all just running together at this point. And it's... Uh, for, for, you know, the, a person that is, a, you know, going senile and having some, some probably some pre-dementia issues, uh, it's going to be a fun episode talking about this. But yes, blood well, and guts, Dave. Let's back up a little bit. So for those that don't know, AEW held an event that they entitled Blood and Guts is essentially their version mm -hmm. of war games where it was two teams of five in a traditional, essentially a traditional war games kind of match where it was Jericho stable against uh, MJF stable, the pinnacle versus the inner circle. Um, and got kind of mixed reviews for a few different reasons. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about because a lot of people had a lot of different opinions on this for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Jason, would you elaborate? Yes, I would. A lot of times I don't follow, uh, the AEW all elite wrestling kind of, uh, storylines. Cause I simply don't have time between, you know, WWE and AEW and NXT and fucking, if I get a little ring of honor thrown in there or, or whatever the hell I I'm watching. And then honestly, A&E has been where most of my attention has been uh, focused on because it deals with the wrestling that I actually fucking care about. Um, which is a lot of the old school dudes and storylines and, and issues outside of the, the ring itself. But I knew blood and guts was happening and it was like this, uh, throwback type, uh, wrestling from sort of it's, it's hard because I want to talk to you guys. I don't like talking to you guys like your marks, like Dave and I, because if you're marks, you already fucking know pretty much what we're talking about. But for a lot of you out there who became wrestling fans through this program back in the eighties, uh, I believe it was a dusty Rhodes creation. I may yes. be wrong, but dusty Rhodes came up with the concept of war games and it was a pay-per-view where it was a lot of goddamn motherfucking violence where two wrestling rings were shoved together with a steel cage wrapping the entire thing in a nice violent package and most of the time these war games were usually not all the time but usually like the horsemen versus a group of people wanting to kill the fucking horsemen which usually were like the road warriors you can throw in the Russians, like Nikita Koloff was in there. Dusty Rhodes was in a lot of, like, most of them. Um, and it was just a fucking uh, horror show of wrestling. It was, in, in my opinion, it was fucking great. Oh, they just, awesome. They're just absolute fucking violence. As a matter of fact, the WWE has produced a, I believe, a DVD package on war games. Yes. I don't own it, but I hear it's 
it, it's just all the good shit. And, I own it. It's awesome. And when it has you, some goofy shit on there too, which they know is goofy because it's like when WCW tried to do like War Games 2000 or something. Like they knew when they put it on the disc, it was shit. <clears throat> but they threw it on there for you know <laughs> context. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, the road you get a War Games together where you've got the Road Warriors, the Russians the horseman and dusty roads in there and, and JJ Dillon's in there and Paul Ellering's inside the cage, dude. I mean that before there was ECW, there was fucking war games from, from the NWA. And I am telling you, it is some violence and it's good violence. It's, it's the, it's that part of the wrestling. Storytelling. Well, storytelling, yay, whatever. But it, there is really stuff in there that's happening that for there's certain wrestling fans that are only watching wrestling for for what's happening in that fucking ring. There, are, there is a group of wrestling fans that could give a shit what brought them to the dance, what brought them into that ring. They just want to see grown men beat the motherfuck out of each other. Well, I'm telling you, watching the Road Warriors against the Horsemen, holy shit, you couldn't get better violence than that, okay? And you did see a lot of shit. I remember Paul Ellering saying about war games he would he said this in the documentary of the road warriors uh biography that they did the wwe produced where he said it was one of these feelings where you walked in going people are gonna die tonight and i'm gonna kill them and he goes and you took it that seriously you knew that's how violent this fucking thing was going to get like jj Dillon walked out with a permanently destroyed fucking collarbone bone and yeah. shoulder and these things would happen in a war games, okay? Well, that that started this kind of feeling of that hardcore uber violence that WWE, I mean, they had some of that, but not to the WWF never carried it to that that fucking level because they were family oriented and didn't want to show that kind of violence. It would break out occasionally, but it was rare. And then when Eastern Championship Wrestling became ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling, uh, well, <laughs> here we go. It really, Paul Heyman had this hardcore ECW style that produced a lot of fucking violence where the whole goal was to hurt each other with and, and see blood and see a lot of things that, yes, the story is fake, but none of the violence or, or the impact or the physical actions happening in that ring, getting hit over the head with light bulbs and, and you know, halogen bulbs and falling on thumbtacks and fire and, and barbed wire. We all know that these are real things that will really fucking cut you. And it happened. Now, violence in the ring of this capacity was not new. It certainly became prevalent and accepted and worshiped by a certain group of the wrestling fans in the, in the mid and late nineties. But I mean, Fred Blassie was one of the first people going over to Japan that realized that if he had some color or get blood from either himself or his opponent, this was fucking magic. It was magic. And he started to actually blade and cut himself. When you're watching a wrestling match, for a lot of people who don't know this, and I think there was at some point in time, a lot of people thought it was like Hollywood blood capsules or it was fake. When you're watching wrestlers bleed in the ring, most of the time, 95% of the time, it's really their fucking blood that's happening. Either because they were opened up the hard way, meaning that one of their, the wrestling opponent actually hit them hard enough to make them bleed on purpose or not on purpose, or they are doing something called blading, where they actually have a razor blade on them that they cut themselves on the forehead most of the time because head blood looks fucking fantastic on camera and it blows, it, it literally 
flows freely and it's very red because it's oxygenated and you would have people like rick flair who had bleached blonde hair or dusty Rhodes bleached blonde hair you always knew a blade job was coming because they were always wearing a white shirt too because it looked fucking great on camera steve austin bret hart wrestlemania 13 absolutely and they and they did that on the sly that vince did not give approval of that at all but it is what it is. But hardcore wrestling started to pick up. Abdullah the Butcher in the 1970s started bringing forks, knives, things like this to the fucking ring, both cutting himself and the opponents that he was with. This became the entire attraction to seeing Abdullah the Butcher. No one watched Abdullah the Butcher because he was a mat tactician, technician. They were watching him because they knew at some point in time he was going to pull out some object and cut the fuck out of himself and his opponent and blood would go all over for the fucking place this became kind of a thing in the 1970s before vince started making it a lot more family friendly in the 80s well by the 90s you start having people actually adapt this as their style i'm going to mention somebody that we all know very well as mick foley who came in as cactus jack and Cactus Jack, Mick Foley, whatever you want to call him, yes, he could take a bump. Yes, he was a good seller. He could make you feel his pain. But when the he started getting involved in extreme wrestling, where there were things like baseball bats wrapped in barbed wire, um, he did really well because he could take punishment. And he could also, unlike a lot of the morons out there that were just getting beat the fuck out of in these extreme wrestling matches with all these props and terrible things happening to them mick still had a storytelling capacity to him and could make the match good even though you were watching most of the time watching the match for sheer violence his another with triple h was outstanding and neither one of us really liked triple h no he, to his credit he he carried his end of that they were, yes, he did. They were magic together matter of fact some people think it's the best hardcore match extreme match that's ever been uh that Royal match Rumble? and yeah and then the thing is also uh, yeah, someone like Terry Funk, who Terry Funk started his wrestling career as, you know, one of the Funk brothers being uh, pretty much your, I mean, he was crazy. His personality was crazy, but he was a wrestler. He was a fucking, you know, Matt wrestler that went in and told a story like every other wrestler. But something happened to Terry in the 90s where he realized I can take a lot of punishment. And he was at an accelerated age when he realized this and started doing extreme wrestling at an older age and became a fucking legend because of this. He was already a legend because of just being an NWA heavyweight champion and being a great wrestler. But then he adapted this extreme style where he's using props and having fire death matches and all sorts of shit in Japan with Mick Foley and, and others and helped ECW get off the ground with this as well. Well, this became a fucking thing. Well, it finally got to a point with people like Sabu and ECW that was just doing absolute fucking insanity where you're damn near killing each other in the ring. And I do agree with Bret Hart when Bret Hart says that the real art of pro wrestling is to make everything real, that look real, but nobody gets hurt. Nobody. He goes, that's the art form of pro wrestling. Well, that if you use that as the measuring stick of pro wrestling, extreme wrestling had nothing to do with Bret Hart's theories at all because you were literally seeing people take abuse for your entertainment. But somewhere in the early 2000s, it all sort of die out because basically Vince had bought everything. Vince owned the entire goddamn wrestling universe. And even though he had quote-unquote extreme matches that he'd let certain individuals like Mick Foley conduct them, which was a great idea, by the way, uh, being, I think, the best at it, uh, it died out because it wasn't family-friendly. 
All these years go by later, and AEW decides to have a throwback, extreme kind of rules match inside of War Games. So you're getting both the 1980s War Games. You're also getting a little bit of that ECW, Abdullah the Butcher. Yes, a fork was pulled out in this motherfucker in homage to him. And you're seeing blood. You literally are seeing blood on cable television. It's not a pay-per-view. Well, a lot of people did like it. I'd say about 50, 60% of the audience did enjoy it uh, because they liked seeing real violence that they grew up with uh, in these other promotions. But a lot of people certainly didn't. They didn't see the necessity to have people really blading truly their own blood on national, uh, international television. Uh, and it, it got uh, some mixed reviews. Some people even wanted refunds, I guess had bought tickets for it or... or, or well, there was, go ahead. There was, a, there was a third argument there too. Yeah. And that was because uh, a lot of those wrestlers were not experienced with blading necessarily because they haven't really they had to do it that much. And also the production team was not experienced with shooting it. They did not, the production team did them no favors where you could clearly see that people were blading. Yeah. You could clearly see that they had blade. Like that ruins the illusion of the reality of what's happening it, it makes everybody kind of look bad like that yeah. was another thing where people say so there were some people who didn't have an issue with the fact that they bladed but the fact that it was so obvious that they were blading was was yeah. the the problem i think that the the issue is that you've got a bunch of younger wrestlers who are inexperienced in in blading which honestly I have to say, I don't need to see blading anymore. I don't need to see people self-mutilating for my fucking entertainment, okay? Uh, there, is, there is absolutely no getting over how dramatic and spectacular it looks, but that is something that's not needed. And also, the, you're right, the production was not prepared to figure out how to do this, where they were almost sleight-of-hand magicians back in the day. I mean, Hulk Hogan kept his blade in his mouth when he wrestled. He'd have the blade there the whole time just in case he needed it to cut himself and make and make the match even, you know, more dramatic, quote unquote, than than it is. They also had a spot at the end. I'm guessing this is kind of spoilers, but Chris, Jer Chris Jericho was thrown off the top of the, the cage, which is, you know, uh, pretty, pretty uh, standard operating procedure at this point, um, I guess. And MJF threw him off the, the top of the cage and he landed into what was very obvious, uh, you know, kind of a, a stunt man's uh, setup airbag. airbag to where, you know, he, he wasn't really going to get hurt. Now, hey, I still give kudos to Chris Jericho for taking that bump. I mean, you're hell, you're that's a bump that you'd pay a stuntman probably a hundred thousand dollars for, and he just he just did it for your entertainment. But it was very obvious that I mean, back in the day, you were seeing they were gimmicked up tables. I don't know how gimmicked up ECW's fucking tables were, but you were seeing people go through real fucking tables all the time, or 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 other 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 items as well. I don't think the production team knew really how to film it. Uh, I know for a fact that because it was on television and they had to show commercials that it really took a lot away from the match itself. And a lot of people are saying it's not that the match was bad. It's that it should have been on a pay-per-view to where the wrestlers didn't have to stall for time while there was a picture-in-picture -picture commercial going on. And it just was offsetting to see these commercials <laughs> You know, trying to sell you something while you see re wrestlers bleeding Abdullah the Butcher style in the ring. And it was very disconcerting for a lot of people. So, well, people was, and, and so it's all over the place with critiques. And I liked it, but it could have been better to this never needs to be done again kind of, kind of shit. Well, it's also, it's also the second time in a row that AEW has promoted something as being hyper-violent and then 
it has a kind of a wet fart ending. The first was the the death match with Kenny Omega and John Moxley, and I'm not a fan generally of those types of matches, but I thought the two of them did a, the, as good a job as anybody could do with that type of thing until the end when the ring is supposed to explode and it didn't. And you just had some sparklers go off, and it just it looked horrible, and that's what everyone remembers from that event. Well, also, you and know, then the thing is, time, Dave, they did they also did a dog collar match too. And yeah. and and every everyone sat there and said that wasn't very good either because the reason Piper and Valentine's dog collar match is so looked at like holy shit is because they took that fucking chain and they legitimately beat the fuck out of each other with it and they weren't do and they're doing this stuff on television they're not doing it a pay per view and they're not really doing it as good as it had been done in the eighties so a lot of people are saying it's nice that you keep doing these throwback type violent match things but you don't do them very goddamn well the things that you do do well like storylines and characters get keep keep that up but all this throwback stuff you know the grandparents back in the 80s that generation did this shit way better than you and you're just not capturing it the way they did so stop doing it but it's also the endings that are especially problematic because even with the even with the blade jobs being caught on camera even with them trying to get too cute with the ending where like the submission happens because MJF is saying he'll throw Jericho off the cage if he if the team doesn't submit or whatever like where it's like Jericho standing there like a moron the entire time and it's like it, it just they got too cute for their own good but um you know, all of that aside, like generally the feedback for that match was solid up until that bump that Jericho took off the cage. And, it, you know, I have no problem with the fact there was an airbag there. Yeah, if you're going to take a dive like that, fucking put an airbag there. But the fact that, A, the commentators tried to say that is a concrete stage. And then you see the dude crash through a cardboard covered airbag, like massive air, you know, airbag. And then the camera zooms in tight, so you see Jericho opening his one eye up and talking to everybody, then trying to act like he's unconscious again, and then they show the replay over and over again. You see the cardboard flaps, like, around and stuff. Like, that's what people remembered. And if you're going to do that type of stunt, then you need to shoot it in such a way that it can actually look believable when you shoot it. Well, yeah, and if it's, you're gonna, it's a if production you're gonna try issue. To, yeah, but it will also, Jericho should have kept his eyes closed and not bothered to like look around and like have a whole conversation with people and call spots and stuff during the match when he's on camera. But um, it, it comes down to the fact that the execution on that was badly done. And that really tarnished the effort of everyone else in that match that had worked their asses off. Like Sammy Guevara got the shit kicked out, mm -hmm. um, you know, up until that point. And yep. it, it sucks that that becomes the moment that everyone remembers and not in a good way. But well, we're way uh, over time, Jason. Is there any final any? No, final I think Wardlow did very good. Darby Allen earlier in the night took this Chevy Chase roll down the fucking stairs. I mean, they were doing everything that they could. It's just like, I'm glad that they're doing this homage stuff now to the, the old school wrestling that you and me fucking love, worship. But there is that thing that I said about Batman a couple episodes ago. You're not going to do it better. We've seen it done better. We've seen it done the best it can be done. Thanks for trying. But why don't you stick to your guns at what you are doing really well? And the stuff that AEW does is really, really fucking good. We just don't need, in my opinion, any more of these uber pretend violent things that are not going to live up to what you're saying. Certainly not. So that's where I'm going to leave it. 
But overall, hey, kudos to the wrestlers inside that that decided to, you know, to, to, to do this blading stuff, which they should never, ever fucking do again. And uh, yeah, once again, contact us with what you guys think about that match, too, because I know a lot of you watched it out there and wanted us to talk about it. So there you go. And that is our show for this week. And we are out of time. So for the dozens and dozens of listeners out there, I am Dave Beaudry. And I am still your Jason Bailey. A.K.A. the Vanilla Godzilla, and we are one day closer to dead, but that day is not and will not be today, so we will talk to you next week.